Section 30 of The Great Events by Famous Historians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 30. Battle of Tours. A.D. 732. Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. When the Saracens had completed the conquest of Spain, and all that country was wholly under their dominion, they determined to extend their authority over the neighboring country of the Franks. Having crossed the Pyrenees, they met with but slight opposition, and soon succeeded in making themselves masters of southern France, thereby furthering and encouraging their boastful ambition to conquer and Islamize the whole world. Already had Africa, Asia Minor, and Eastern Europe acknowledged their rule, and the final subjugation of all Christendom by the Mahometan sword seemed certain and imminent. Their long and uninterrupted career of success had fed their arrogance and filled them with a proud confidence in the invincibility of their arms, and their farther advance into the heart of Europe seemed in the eyes of Christian and pagan alike to be the irresistible march of destiny. The Saracen host had not penetrated far into the Frankish territory when they encountered a lion in the path in the person of Charles, or Carl, the great palace mayor so-called, but who was in reality the de facto sovereign of the Frankish kingdoms. To Charles, famous for his military skill and prestige, came the recently defeated Eudes, the Count of Aquitaine, and the remnant of his force craving his protection and leadership against the advancing Saracen horde. Charles's signal victory over the Saracen invaders proved to be the turning point in the Moslem career of conquest. The question whether the Koran or the Bible, the Crescent or the Cross, Mahomet or Christ should rule Europe and the Western world was decided forever upon the bloody field of Tours. The broad tract of Champagne country which intervenes between the cities of Poitiers and Tours is principally composed of a succession of rich pasture lands, which are traversed and fertilized by the Cher, the Creuse, the Vienne, the Kleine, the Indre, and other tributaries of the River Loire. Here and there the ground swells into picturesque eminences, and occasionally a belt of forest land, a brown heath, or a clustering series of vineyards breaks the monotony of the widespread meadows, but the general character of the land is that of a grassy plain, and it seems naturally adapted for the evolutions of numerous armies, especially of those vast bodies of cavalry which principally decided the fate of nations during the centuries that followed the downfall of Rome and preceded the consolidation of the modern European powers. This region has been signalized by more than one memorable conflict, but it is principally interesting to the historian by having been the scene of the great victory won by Charles Martel over the Saracens, A.D. 732, which gave a decisive check to the career of Arab conquest in Western Europe, rescued Christendom from Islam, 
preserved the relics of ancient and the germs of modern civilization, and re-established the old superiority of the Indo-European over the Semitic family of mankind. Sismondi and Micolet have underrated the enduring interest of this great appeal of battle between the champions of the Crescent and the Cross, but if French writers have slighted the exploits of their national hero, the Saracenic trophies of Charles Martel have had full justice done to them by English and German historians. Gibbon devotes several pages of his great work to the narrative of the Battle of Tours, and to the consideration of the consequences which probably would have resulted if Abderrahman's enterprise had not been crushed by the Frankish chief. Schlegel speaks of this mighty victory in terms of fervent gratitude, and tells how the arm of Charles Martel saved and delivered the Christian nations of the West from the deadly grasp of all destroying Islam, and Ranka points out, as one of the most important epochs in the history of the world, the commencement of the eighth century, when on the one side Mahometanism threatened to overspread Italy and Gaul, and on the other the ancient idolatry of Saxony and Friesland once more forced its way across the Rhine. In this peril of Christian institutions, a youthful prince of Germanic race, Charles or Karl Martel, arose as their champion, maintained them with all the energy which the necessity for self-defense calls forth, and finally extended them into new regions. Arnold ranks the victory of Charles Martel even higher than the victory of Arminius. Among those signal differences which have affected for centuries the happiness of mankind, in fact the more we test its importance, the higher we shall be led to estimate it, and though all authentic details which we possess of its circumstances and its heroes are but meagre, we can trace enough of its general character to make us watch with deep interest this encounter between the rival conquerors of the decaying Roman Empire. That old classic world, the history of which occupies so large a portion of our early studies, lay in the eighth century of our era, utterly examined and overthrown. On the north, the German, on the south, the Arab, was rending away its provinces, at last the spoilers encountered one another, each striving for the full mastery of the prey. Their conflict brought back upon the memory of Gibbon, the old Homeric simile where the strife of Hector and Patroclus over the dead body of Cibriones is compared to the combat of two lions that in their hate and hunger fight together on the mountain tops over the carcass of a slaughtered stag, and the reluctant yielding of the Saracen power to the superior might of the northern warriors might not inaptly recall those other lines of the same book of the Iliad, where the downfall of Patroclus beneath Hector is likened to the forced yielding of the panting and exhausted wild boar that had long and furiously fought with a superior beast of prey for the possession of the scanty fountain among the rocks, at which each burned to drink. Although three centuries had passed away since the Germanic conquerors of Rome had crossed the Rhine never to repass that frontier stream, no settled system of institutions or government, no amalgamation of the various races into one people, 
no uniformity of language or habits had been established in the country at the time when charles martel was called to repel the menacing tide of saracenic invasion from the south gaul was not yet france in that as in the other provinces of the roman empire of the west the dominion of the caesars had been shattered as early as the fifth century and barbaric kingdoms and principalities had promptly arisen on the ruins of the roman power but few of these had any permanency and none of them consolidated the rest or any considerable number of the rest into one coherent and organized civil and political society the great bulk of the population still consisted of the conquered provincials that is to say of romanized celts of a gallic race which had long been under the dominion of the caesars and had acquired together with no slight infusion of roman blood the language the literature the laws and the civilization of latium among these and dominant over them roved or dwelt the german victors some retaining nearly all the rude independence of their primitive national character others softened and disciplined by the aspect and contact of the manners and institutions of civilized life for it is to be borne in mind that the roman empire in the west was not crushed by any sudden avalanche of barbaric invasion the german conquerors came across the rhine not in enormous hosts but in bands of a few thousand warriors at a time the conquest of a province was the result of an infinite series of partial local invasions carried on by little armies of this description the victorious warriors either retired with their booty or fixed themselves in the invaded district taking care to keep sufficiently concentrated for military purposes and ever ready for some fresh foray either against a rival teutonic band or some hitherto unassailed city of the provincials gradually however the conquerors acquired a desire for permanent landed possessions they lost somewhat of the restless thirst for novelty and adventure which had first made them throng beneath the banner of the boldest captains of their tribe and leave their native forests for a roving military life on the left bank of the rhine they were converted to the christian faith and gave up with their old creed much of the coarse ferocity which must have been fostered in the spirits of the ancient warriors of the north by a mythology which promised as the reward of the brave on earth an eternal cycle of fighting and drunkenness in heaven but although their conversion and other civilizing influences operated powerfully upon the germans in gaul and although the franks who were originally a confederation of the teutonic tribes that dwelt between the rhine and the main and the weser established a decisive superiority over the other conquerors of the province as well as over the conquered provincials the country long remained a chaos of uncombined and shifting elements the early princes of the merovingian dynasty were generally occupied in wars against other princes of their house occasioned by the frequent subdivisions of the frank monarchy and the ablest and best of them had found all their energies tasked to the utmost to defend the barrier of the rhine against the pagan germans who strove to pass that river and gather their share of the spoils of the empire the conquests which the saracens effected over the southern and eastern provinces of rome were far more rapid than those achieved by the germans in the north 
and the new organizations of society which the Moslems introduced were summarily and uniformly enforced. Exactly a century passed between the death of Mohammed and the date of the Battle of Tours. During that century, the followers of the Prophet had torn away half the Roman Empire, and besides their conquests over Persia, the Saracens had overrun Syria, Egypt, Africa, and Spain in an unchecked and apparently irresistible career of victory. Nor at the commencement of the eighth century of our era was the Mahometan world divided against itself as it subsequently became. All these vast regions obeyed the Caliph. Throughout them all, from the Pyrenees to the Oxus, the name of Mahomet was invoked in prayer and the Koran revered as the Book of the Law. It was under one of their ablest and most renowned commanders with a veteran army and with every apparent advantage of time, place, and circumstance that the Arabs made their great effort at the conquest of Europe north of the Pyrenees. The victorious Moslem soldiery in Spain, a countless multitude, Syrian, Moor, Saracen, Greek renegade, Persian, and Copt, and Tartar in one bond, of erring faith conjoined, strong in the youth and heat of zeal, a dreadful brotherhood, were eager for the plunder of more Christian cities and shrines, and full of fanatic confidence in the invincibility of their arms. Nor were the chiefs of victory less assured by long success, elate and proud of that o'erwhelming strength which surely they believed, as it rolled thus far unchecked, would roll victorious on, till, like the Orient, the subjected West, should bow in reverence at Mahomet's name, and pilgrims from remotest Arctic shores tread with religious feet the burning sands of Araby and Mecca's stony soil. Southey's Roderick. It is not only by the modern Christian poet, but by the old Arabian chroniclers also, that these feelings of ambition and arrogance are attributed to the Moslems, who had overthrown the Visigoth power in Spain, and their eager expectation of new wars were excited to the utmost on the reappointment by the Caliph of Abdurrahman ibn Abdillah Agafeki to the government of that country, A.D. 729, which restored them a general who had signalized his skill and prowess during the conquests of Africa and Spain, whose ready valor and generosity had made him the idol of the troops, who had already been engaged in several expeditions into Gaul so as to be well acquainted with the national character and tactics of the Franks, and who was known to thirst, like a good Moslem, for revenge for the slaughter of some detachments of the true believers, which had been cut off on the north of the Pyrenees. In addition to his cardinal military virtues, Abdurrahman is described by the Arab writers as a model of integrity and justice. The first two years of his second administration in Spain were occupied in severe reforms of the abuses which under his predecessors had crept into the system of government and in extensive preparations for his intended conquest in Gaul. Besides the troops which he collected from his province, he obtained from Africa a large body of chosen Berber cavalry officered by Arabs of proved skill and valor, 
and in the summer of 732 he crossed the Pyrenees at the head of an army which some Arab writers rate at 80,000 strong, while some of the Christian chroniclers swell its numbers to many hundreds of thousands more. Probably the Arab account diminishes, but of the two keeps nearer to the truth. It was from this formidable host, after Eudes the Count of Aquitaine had vainly striven to check it, after many strong cities had fallen before it, and half the land had been overrun, that Gaul and Christendom were at last rescued by the strong arm of Prince Charles, who acquired a surname Martel, the Hammer, like that of the war-god of his forefathers' creed, from the might with which he broke and shattered his enemies in battle. The Merovingian kings had sunk into absolute insignificance and had become mere puppets of royalty before the eighth century. Charles Martel, like his father, Pepin Heristal, was Duke of the Austrasian Franks, the bravest and most thoroughly Germanic part of the nation, and exercised in the name of the titular king what little paramount authority the turbulent minor rulers of districts and towns could be persuaded or compelled to acknowledge. Engaged with his national competitors in perpetual conflicts for power, and in more serious struggles for safety against the fierce tribes of the unconverted Frisians, Bavarians, Saxons, and Thuringians, who at that epoch assailed with peculiar ferocity the Christianized Germans on the left bank of the Rhine, Charles Martel added experienced skill to his natural courage, and he had also formed a militia of veterans among the Franks. Hallam has thrown out a doubt whether in our admiration of his victory at Tours we do not judge a little too much by the event, and whether there was not rashness in his risking the fate of France on the result of a general battle with the invaders. But when we remember that Charles had no standing army, and the independent spirit of the Frank warriors who followed his standard, it seems most probable that it was not in his power to adopt the cautious policy of watching the invaders and wearing out their strength by delay. So dreadful and so widespread were the ravages of the Saracenic light cavalry throughout Gaul that it must have been impossible to restrain for any length of time the indignant ardor of the Franks. And even if Charles could have persuaded his men to look tamely on while the Arabs stormed more towns and desolated more districts, he could not have kept an army together when the usual period of a military expedition had expired, if indeed the Arab account of the disorganization of the Moslem forces be correct, the battle was as well timed on the part of Charles as it was beyond all question well fought. The monkish chroniclers from whom we are obliged to glean a narrative of this memorable campaign bear full evidence to the terror which the Saracen invasion inspired and to the agony of that great struggle. The Saracens, say they, and their king, who was called Abderames, came out of Spain, with all their wives and their children and their substance, in such great multitudes that no man could reckon or estimate them. They brought with them all their armor and whatever they had, as if they were thenceforth always to dwell in France. Then Abderrahman, seeing the land filled with the multitude of his army, pierces through the mountains, tramples over rough and level ground, 
plunders far into the country of the Franks, and smites all with the sword, insomuch that when Eudes came to battle with him at the river Garone, and fled before him, God alone knows the number of the slain. Then Abderrahman pursued after Count Eudes, and while he strives to spoil and burn the holy shrine at Tours, he encounters the chief of the Austrasian Franks, Charles, a man of war from his youth, up to whom Eudes had sent warning. There for nearly seven days they strive intensely, and at last they set themselves in battle array, and the nations of the north, standing firm as a wall and impenetrable as a zone of ice, utterly slay the Arabs with the edge of the sword. The European writers all concur in speaking of the fall of Abdurrahman as one of the principal causes of the defeat of the Arabs, who, according to one writer, after finding that their leader was slain, dispersed in the night, to the agreeable surprise of the Christians, who expected the next morning to see them issue from their tents and renew the combat. One monkish chronicler puts the loss of the Arabs at three hundred and seventy-five thousand men, while well, he says that only one thousand and seven Christians fell, a disparity of loss which he feels bound to account for by a special interposition of providence. I have translated above some of the most spirited passages of these writers, but it is impossible to collect from them anything like a full or authentic description of the great battle itself, or of the operations which preceded and followed it. Though, however, we may have cause to regret the meagerness and doubtful character of these narratives, we have the great advantage of being able to compare the accounts given of Abdurrahman's expedition by the national writers of each side. This is a benefit which the inquirer into antiquity so seldom can obtain that the fact of possessing it in the case of the Battle of Tours makes us think the historical testimony respecting that great event more certain and satisfactory than is the case in many other instances where we possess abundant details respecting military exploits, but where those details come to us from the analyst of one nation only, and where we have consequently no safeguard against the exaggerations, the distortions, and the fictions which national vanity has so often put forth in the garb and under the title of history. The Arabian writers who recorded the conquests and wars of their countrymen in Spain have narrated also the expedition into Gaul of their great emir, and his defeat and death near Tours in battle with the host of the Franks under King Caldus, the name into which they metamorphose Charles Martel. They tell us how there was war between the Count of the Frankish frontier and the Moslems, and how the Count gathered together all his people and fought for a time with doubtful success. But, say the Arabian chroniclers, Abdurrahman drove them back, and the men of Abdurrahman were puffed up in spirit by their repeated successes, and they were full of trust in the valor and the practice in war of their emir. So the Moslems smote their enemies and passed the river Garone, and laid waste the country and took captives without number, and that army went through all places like a desolating storm. Prosperity made these warriors insatiable. 
at the passage of the river abderrahman overthrew the count and the count retired into his stronghold but the moslems fought against it and entered it by force and slew the count for everything gave way to their scimitars which were the robbers of lives all the nations of the franks trembled at that terrible army and they betook them to their king caldus and told him of the havoc made by the moslem horsemen and how they rode at their will through all the land of narbonne toulouse and bordeaux and they told the king of the death of their count then the king bade them be of good cheer and offered to aid them and in the one hundred fourteenth year he mounted his horse and he took with him a host that could not be numbered and went against the moslems and he came upon them at the great city of tours and abderrahman and other prudent cavaliers saw the disorder of the moslem troops who were loaded with spoil but they did not venture to displease the soldiers by ordering them to abandon everything except their arms and war-horses and abderrahman trusted in the valor of his soldiers and in the good fortune which had ever attended him but the arab writer remarks such defect of discipline is always fatal to armies so Abderrahman and his host attacked Tours to gain still more spoil, and they fought against it so fiercely that they stormed the city almost before the eyes of the army that came to save it, and the fury and the cruelty of the Moslems toward the inhabitants of the city were like the fury and cruelty of raging tigers. It was manifest, adds the Arab, that God's chastisement was sure to follow such excesses, and fortune thereupon turned her back upon the moslems near the river owar the two great hosts of the two languages and the two creeds were set in array against each other the hearts of abderrahman his captains and his men were filled with wrath and pride and they were the first to begin the fight the moslem horsemen dashed fierce and frequent toward and against the battalions of the franks who resisted manfully and many fell dead on either side until the going down of the sun. Night parted the two armies, but in the gray of the morning the Moslems returned to the battle. Their cavaliers had soon hewn their way into the center of the Christian host, but many of the Moslems were fearful for the safety of the spoil which they had stored in their tents, and a false cry arose in their ranks that some of the enemy were plundering the camp whereupon several squadrons of the Moslem horsemen rode off to protect their tents, but it seemed as if they fled, and all the host was troubled. And while Abderrahman strove to check their tumult and to lead them back to battle, the warriors of the Franks came around him, and he was pierced through with many spears, so that he died. Then all the host fled before the enemy, and many died in the flight. This deadly defeat of the Moslems and the loss of the great leader and good cavalier Abderrahman took place in the hundred and fifteenth year. It would be difficult to expect from an adversary a more explicit confession of having been thoroughly vanquished than the Arabs here accord to the Europeans. The points on which their narrative differs from those of the Christians, as to how many days the conflict lasted, whether the assailed city was actually rescued or not, and the like, are of little moment compared with the admitted great fact 
that there was a decisive trial of strength between Frank and Saracen, in which the former conquered. The enduring importance of the Battle of Tours in the eyes of the Moslems is attested not only by the expressions of the deadly battle and the disgraceful overthrow which their writers constantly employ when referring to it, but also by the fact that no more serious attempts at conquest beyond the Pyrenees were made by the Saracens. Charles Martel and his son and grandson were left at leisure to consolidate and extend their power. The new Christian Roman Empire of the West, which the genius of Charlemagne founded, and throughout which his iron will imposed peace on the old anarchy of creeds and races, did not indeed retain its integrity after its great ruler's death. Fresh troubles came over Europe, but Christendom, though disunited, was safe. The progress of civilization and the development of the nationalities and governments of modern Europe from that time forth went forward, and not uninterrupted, but ultimately certain career. End of section 30. Recording by Thomas Rose.